Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm Rachel Geringer. On today's show, we're learning about The Moth, a live storytelling series that will be here at Apple Shop on Thursday, May 10th. First, director Jennifer Hickson joins me on the phone to talk about some history and behind-the-scenes details about how the moth works. And then, we hear two moth stories recorded at live shows across the country. The first features Dame Wilburn, who will emcee the moth event here at Apple Shop. And in the second, Wilburn introduces Australian comedian John Bennett. Hi, um, I'm Jennifer Hickson. I'm the senior director at The Moth. I've been with The Moth for almost 20 years. And in my role, I have a lot of different, uh, wear a lot of different hats, but I um, direct main stage stories. So that's like the one we're about to have at Apple Shop um, on Thursday. And that means I uh, find storytellers. I talk with them about things that happen to them in their life, and then I try and shape the stories and to fit into a certain time frame, uh, 10 or 12 minutes, which can be very challenging because people have huge, long, complex, and beautiful lives, and sometimes I feel like a big meanie telling them to <laughs> chop it down. <laughs> nope, chop that out. Chop that out. Not important. Um, but trying to, um, because we like to have five different stories in each show, so we want to have room for everyone all the stories and for everyone to breathe. If you listen to moth stories, you'll notice that they're not, you know, it's not exactly the science always. Some are shorter, some are longer. Um, So that's one of my roles and one of my favorites, of course, to meet people and hear their stuff, hear what's happened to them and to help them along the way, shape it. Um, It's really cool, privilege, real privilege to do with people. Um, I also started the Story Slam, which is a competition, a storytelling competition, which feels a little maybe even wrong. How can you have stories compete? But it's sort of for the fun of it, the competition, um, and so that we have a, a winner every time we have a show, and then that winner goes on to a bigger show. But it's not kind of gladiator style to the death storytelling. It's not like that. Um, it, and the audience picks it, and it's not a perfect science at all. But it's just uh, that helps people stick to their time limits because the people at Story Slams are not coached. They uh, just show up with a, uh, do a, have a, there's a theme and then they just show up with their take on it. Um, and then people from the audience, uh, their peers from the audience, kind of jury style, um, help judge to find who is the person who will go on to the next level of the competition where, to be honest, you don't win anything except like a T-shirt. So it's, it's all <laughs> kind of a loose competition. It's for fun. <laughs> And then I also am um, a host of the Moth Radio Hour, which is where we piece together uh, stories that we love that we think really worked well on stage and put them into an hour mixed up with other stories. And um, I act as a host just kind of bridging between the stories and giving a little bit of biographical information about the people or any little funny things that happened along the way while they were telling their stories or following up on a story because sometimes a person tells a story and then it doesn't air for a year. So by that time, they've had their baby or their business has launched or whatever the story was, or they've made it back from the moon. (laughs) That one's not a real example, although we have had some astronauts. (laughs) We haven't had anyone who's been to the moon yet. 
<laughs> yet, yet. That's for the future. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the history of the moth? How did it get started? Where did the idea come from? Yes, well, it is, was born in the South, like so many beautiful things in America. And it started in on St. Simon's Island in Georgia, where George Dawes Green, who was a writer and a novelist, um, lived for a time and had a bunch of wonderful, eclectic friends in all different professions, and but all creative talkers um, who liked to share stories. And so they were meeting up, and they finally maybe got sick of interrupting each other and like, no, just just let him have the floor for a minute there. And they decided, that was a decided thing, like, you, you can talk now for 10 minutes. Go ahead. And they gave each other the space to tell a whole, you know, spill out an entire story. And they loved it. They, they There was a lot of bourbon involved, too, apparently. Um, and the stories went on into the night as they took turns. And there was a hole or several holes in the screened-in porch, and moths came in. And so then it was sort of a snow globe of moths by the end of the evening with all these wonderful stories and the bourbon, everything swirling around in there. And they started to call them, let's have another one of those moth nights. And then years later, um, George moved to New York City. We, he wrote a book, um, Caveman's Valentine, and he had some success with that. And But when he came to New York, he noticed that everybody was just, nobody had time for a longer story. It was all sound bites and um, and he thought, now let's recreate this. We, people need space to breathe and have the floor for a while. And so he first had the first moth in New York in his living room. And so many people came and loved it and said, when are you going to do another one of those? And then that's how the organization was born. And since then, a number of wonderful, um, uh, mostly women, or no, all I think all of our directors and have been women, um, have come along and put together you know, yeah, have given this, the show um, wings, legs, all the stuff they need. And George is still around to help us out. Um, yeah. That's so that's great. the beginning of how it started. <laughs> yeah. that's I, I love that. It, so, it sounds like um, a delightful kind of an evening to have on a porch with stories and bourbon and um, the kind of evening people here often have <laughs> i know yeah i'm hoping i have one too i'm gonna to be there an extra night you know? well we, we know some porches and <laughs> it is kentucky so <laughs> i'm sure we can make that happen um okay <laughs> um let's see um why do you think so so i do think we have kind of an ongoing it's not only a rich history of storytelling here in the mountains but it's still a way that people pass the time a lot of times right um in the country, whether that's on porches or, you know, at a, at a ball game or wherever people are hanging out. Um, and I wonder, you know, how is it different to see storytelling live on stage than just the ways that we interact with it in our daily lives? Hmm. Well, for one thing, as I mentioned, you can't, you're, when someone's telling moth story, you are not allowed to interrupt them. <laughs> it would be very peculiar if you did. So I think when you're just on a porch telling a story to a friend, um, yeah, your friend, um, I mean, that's normal conversation, right? We're like, oh, that reminds me of my thing. But you kind of have to hold that back um, when you're listening to someone. So it's it's not like a conversation that way. But I guess there's something formal about it and something um, 
I think the way that stories spill out when we're just talking to each other, that's one beautiful way to communicate. But then when you're going to present something, these stories are really thought out, and the people have really chosen the words they're going to use carefully. And they've also thought, really give, given a lot of thought to what the story means. And so a, a presented story, I guess, gives context to the things that happened. I think in our everyday life, we're telling stories where like, yo, you won't believe what happened. I did this or that. But um, it doesn't always spill out right after you say what happened, what you what you made of it or how it's going to change your life. You know, that takes some contemplation. So I, I feel that these stories are more, um, yeah, they're, they're different because they're crafted in a way rather than just told. I don't know. There's no stories are wonderful. Whichever way they come out is the truth. Um, So, but that's just for moth stories. They are more, um, yeah, more crafted. I guess would be the right verb for it. Um, uh, And it's just, I think it's great to see a story come out of someone's face and to feel them and to see their reaction and how they feel doing it. You, there's something electric, and there's something great in the in the play between the audience and the teller. And yeah, as they speak, as the audience laughs, the storyteller's maybe going to add something else in. Or if the audience gets very quiet, and they're going, the storyteller's going to know, oh, I've hit I've hit a nerve with everybody. Um, they're 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 with me on this. Maybe they'll stay in that moment a little bit longer, in a scary moment or a suspenseful moment. I don't know. There's a little play back and forth with the audience and the teller. Hmm. Yeah. And and so um, when you're working with a storyteller, what kinds of what kinds of coaching are you doing to try to get their story ready for a moth um, event? Well, I think, you know, initially, well, sometimes I talk to a person for an hour before we find the story that they they really want to tell. And sometimes it's not the story they really thought they wanted to tell at all. Um, but then you have to get into the little the, the nooks and of the story and um, find the turning points and um, for, in one way to make it easier for the storyteller, what are the stepping stones of this story? What happened? What happened? What happened? And um, a good way to do that is by identifying, yeah, when things changed or when the direction changed of things. You know, it, it really isn't a story of everything went as planned, right? It's always, there's usually something went awry. Not that all stories are about problems, but they are, um, they are about, yeah, challenges that people have to either fix something or make something happen that wasn't supposed to happen, but they want to happen. Um, all the, the turns in there and helping people. I think one of the way toughest things to do to decide when did your story start and when does it end? Because, um, yeah, there's really one start and one finish to our lives <laughs> and the big ones there, but to decide when, okay, when did this story really begin and what's the final piece of it? Um, because most of our stories are continuing on. But th- those are, and that's very helpful. If you're able to decide your beginning and your end, then yeah, that's kind of, that's one of the toughest jobs, actually. A lot of people are like, I don't know how to end it. How do I end it? Because there's a feeling that people, you want everything to be tied up in a bow, but that's it's not realistic. Many things are still up in the air. Um, but there should be something a little satisfying at the end, but I don't know, it's different for every story. 
Mm-hmm. You know how some people get so mad if there's a movie and they're like, what happened at the end? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you watch a big story and you're like, what? They were just walking down the road. What happened? <laughs> Are they married? Did they get divorced? What happened? Um, so, but that is honest sometimes, people. And these are people's true stories that happened to them. So sometimes yeah. I can't, I, know, I can't force them to go out and make an ending sometimes. But, but right. sometimes I'll say like, well, let's, let's revisit this in six months. Let's look at this again. Um, because I think it's interesting how you would tell the exact same story a different way. In, in four decades of your life, the exact same story looks different, I think, every time you look at it. Um, hmm. Hmm. Yeah. You know, years ago we made this decision because at the very beginning of the moth, we had some stories that were not true, and we had some stories that were, you know, more journalism than stories. Because and that's that's always a challenge because journalists have amazing stories. They've been to amazing places, but they are just observers. Mm. And I don't know to get the emotional connection that we like. We we want to hear the emotion straight from the heart of the person telling the story. And sometimes that seems a little unfair because you know a journalist or someone telling their grandparents' story, they can get that across and it'll break your heart. But it just was so many we have so many voices coming at us all the time it just was a a way to a way to um sift some out mm-hmm. for our purposes you know which yeah. sounds otherwise we yeah if we had if we had to also take in fiction stories i don't know gosh it's so hard to even find get somebody to work with the true things that happened and how to arrange it what if they could then be like no no let's make the guy let's see uh, he's a superhero <laughs> no no he's just as a bear you know <laughs> oh gosh you know, that would be so overwhelming the way that I'm looking at it. I'm trying to get to the emotional heart of a story and the truth. And if a lot of fictional elements can come in, it just, yeah. It, 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 I'm, I just don't have the skills for that. It's like um, other people do, obviously, and people beautifully mesh um, real and fictional things and uh, end up with stunning pieces of art. But for our storytelling, we just thought, and here's the other thing, if, if we stick to it being true, I feel that people are more forgiving of it. Um, and they're right, because not everybody's expected to be an amazing rock and tour or be able to, you know, tell their story in some epic way. Mm-hmm. But if you make something up and you get on a stage, you're like, well, you better be pretty compelling and fantastic at this. If, if, <laughs> but if you're just, you know, I'm just Mary telling my story over here. I'm just a regular person like you. Yeah, you will we'll come to meet you halfway. Mm. In a way that that you don't, when someone um, is has a whole prepared, like I'm on a degree from this and that, or you know has a lot of experience and things. And I, not to devalue that, because wow, I, I'm so impressed by people right. who who can act and be a whole other person and convince you they are another person. Like wow, that's. But um, yeah, right now we're just trying to help you be yourself. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little yeah. <laughs> yeah. easier there. Yeah. Well, and it and it makes sense because there there are so many types of stories in the world, right? Like you're just getting it into certain, like there's you just mentioned sort of theater, and then you also mentioned fiction, which is written, and then I also think you know we live in such a time of like, um, of so much like visual media on devices, and so it's it makes sense that you would both have to figure out like what what is it that the moth is doing that's that's different and. Um, yeah, and and to have some boundaries around that because there's just so so much media, so many times kinds of stories in our days that we're taking in, 
Um, and I've never never been to a moth show and haven't actually listened to much, but I'm really looking forward to the chance to to see people telling their stories live because I think that um, outside of just kind of the everyday interacting with neighbors or friends or family where we tell each other stories, it's it's becoming more rare in our world that we sit down and listen to someone tell a story that they've really carefully crafted and it and it didn't used to be as rare always right like this is a thing that people used to do for centuries (laughs) there were kind of storytellers and so um do you feel like this is sort of a a rare art form these days or a rare kind of practice that the moth is helping keep alive at least at least here in the states i mean i hope that we have our I, what we, our dream would be to have it for us to, um, that we've elevated something that is obviously, look, the moth did not invent storytelling. Come on, this has been around forever. And yeah, so people have done an excellent job at it. But trying to elevate it to an art form, I think, would be, is a goal of ours, like for it to be appreciated and be on the same level with um, poetry and music, uh, dance. And all these other arts that have been that really all of which um, incorporate storytelling in there big time, right? That's part of all plays and many dance pieces. Storytelling is in everything, and uh, you can hear it in all Hollywood. People are like what the storytelling in this movie, this and that. But um, we're just hoping that personal storytelling is recognized as uh, the beautiful art form that it is. Each person taking. The, the stuff that happened to them and turning it into a pearl, right? Uh, all the sand that got caught in their shell. <laughs> like, hey, let me fix this up. <laughs> Make it shiny and beautiful. Um, yeah. yeah. Not that the stories have to be beautiful, but uh, look, this is a finished product. This is. I took all the stray pieces of things that happened to me and put them in order in a way that makes you understand me more deeply and understand maybe bigger truths about the world. Um, or about where you came from or where you're going. Yeah, that is an art form, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and, and the what I think is so beautiful about storytelling is it's an art form that everybody can do. You know, you know not everybody can be a potter, right? Yeah. I've tried the wheel. I just can't get that thing centered on there. No, I just can't do it. Or, you know, people aren't flexible. They can't do that with pirouette, and I, you know, they can't hit the high note in some opera. Um, but a story, everybody really—it's true. Everybody really has stories, and um, sometimes they just are beautiful at telling them. Sometimes they need a little bit of help, a little coaching along the way, um, a little editing, maybe. Sometimes, you know, take away some stuff so you can see see what was in there. You know, just like in sculpture, there's some some people start with a piece of marble and chip things away, and then then there's the story, and other people will take little pieces of clay and build on each other, and then then there's the story in that. Yeah. So maybe are there some some particular stories you you listen to so many stories, you help develop so many stories, you've helped record and put on the radio so many stories. So I'm sure there's just like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds or thousands in your brain. But are there certain stories that really stick that that you just can't forget or you keep coming back to of course there's i have favorites but um yeah i hate to say that because i love all my babies they're all (laughs) equal in my mind 
No, there, I love so many, so many stories all, for different reasons. There are stories that come at you, big, fun, bombastic people who, you know, talk a mile a minute and it's a madcap romp. You know, somebody like Michaela Murphy's The All-Star Game um, that's fast-paced. Then there's other more quiet, quiet stories that are about really deep and difficult things like um, Carly Johnstone, who talks about being 16 and uh, pregnant and um, knowing and what really wanting to keep her baby, but knowing she really could barely keep herself afloat. And so deciding to give her baby up for, but, but um, having the advantage of an open adoption. So she was able to pick the family that her, that her son went to and how she stayed in touch with the family. And, um, and they are who showed her what a family, how a family should work and how it should look because Carly had been orphaned. So um, yeah, that, that's a really beautiful one. Um, and there's fun, silly ones of um, Sarah Barron, who's got a, who starts dating a guy and thinks he's great and he has this dog, but the next time she goes over, the dog isn't there. And then it turns out the dog is, has there's joint custody of the dog. So the man's still kind of involved with his ex with this dog custody <laughs> problem. And she's a girlfriend. She doesn't like it at all. So that's very funny and how she gets to the edge of that. There's, there's tiny stories. There's one Jeff Zimmerman, which is um, a New York city subway story where it's, he, uh, he kind of, he gets in a uh, fight with a woman on the on a subway, and the rest of the subway kind of uh, comes to his rescue. Uh, that's a very fun short one. Um, stories about all kinds of yeah. There, let's see, the the epic ones. Michael Massimino um, does go to outer space and fix the Hubble telescope. That's pretty wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or there's other people who oh we have. Um, Oh, I'm going to forget his name now, but we have a guy who's, um, his father takes him. He really doesn't ever want to go hunting, but his father takes him. And um, about the first time he, he, um, he, he shoots a deer and then has to um, he, uh, prepare it, you know, whatever, whatever happens after you and his feelings about that as a kid um, who really wasn't into doing it and what that meant to him. Um, let's see. All just all kinds of stories. Wow. They're I, it's it's so difficult to to find a favorite. I bet. Um, there's one by Taylor Negron that I really love about him getting a a pet monkey. <laughs> 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 Unique story. <laughs> Doesn't happen to all of us. But I always wanted a monkey pet. Don't most people? I don't know. <laughs> like great, but but this monkey turns out it's not that great. <laughs> Monkeys should be in the wild. <laughs> not, don't make good pets. <laughs> There's a reason they're not not domesticated. <laughs> no, they're not the best pets. Stick with the dog. <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, so. So the moth has had live events kind of all over the world. Is that true? That's true. Yeah, we've been in. I've been to. Um, well, one of the favorite places I went was um, we. I directed a story. I co-directed a story at the Sydney Opera House, which was that was crazy. That felt like I directed a show at the Eiffel Tower. You know, hey. it's, it's <laughs> such an iconic building. Like I'm at the Empire State Building. <laughs> that was a really cool point. We were all everybody who was there was like, we can't believe they're so fun. But um, we've also, um, my boss did a, Catherine Burns directed a show in Tajikistan um, in a village where everybody had to, the stories had to be translated. 
Um, and we've been to London and Dublin and many places in Africa. We've been doing shows through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, have funded a lot of our um, things. I gotta, what the heck is that called? I'm sorry. I want to okay. get that right. Okay. We've told stories in Africa, um, many Nigeria, Uganda, um, and let's see. I'm trying to think of the strangest place there's been a storytelling show. But I know that might be, oh, I'm, I'm directing one in a cemetery at the end of June. Wow. Um, a very historic cemetery in Brooklyn, New York, um, which is a beautiful setting, kind of a, a turn-of-the-century cemetery where, yeah, the, all the, I mean, it's we're not doing it on people's graves. It's very respectful and everything, <laughs> but it's a very be- beautiful, beautiful um, park that mm. where I think a lot of cool, famous people are buried but it has it does have a spooky tone to it. It's kind of fun. That sounds fun. Yeah. But you're gonna be in uh, Whitesburg, Kentucky, at Apple Shop on Thursday. And how many rural shows have y'all done in the U.S.? Not enough. This is exciting. This is the prototype rural show. We have to nail this, so we'll be invited back. <laughs> we don't want you guys spreading around that it didn't work out. <laughs> so really hoping it's going to be great. No, I know it's going to be great. The show is full of all people from um, from Kentucky, from Appalachia. Yeah, who, and who's, who's you guys who's on are the amazing storytellers and have um, have completely cracked me up and broken my heart and all the good places in between there. And we need to get out more. That is, I feel like the voices rural voices are missing from our from our catalog of stories we'd like to have many more so i really do hope that you um that folks will come and enjoy the show and be inspired to come and pitch their own stories we have a pitch line which is really easy or you could come and tap on my shoulder i will be there on thursday and grab me and um, tell me your story or we have a pitch line if you want to um, really think about think about it ahead of time, which is good. It's good to have your pitch kind of nailed down, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York, they call it the elevator pitch. I don't know if there's many elevators around where I'm going to be. <laughs> Are there elevators at Apple Shop? We have one elevator. Sometimes it opens on its own, and so we call it the elevator ghost. Um, it doesn't get a lot of traffic, that elevator, but um, but we do have one. So. Well, the thing is that you know, you to do a to do a great pitch, you need to have a lot of floors. That's the problem, I think, right? If right. you don't have, you know, <laughs> it's a one it's floor. In a skyscraper, you have a lot longer time. Yeah, to trap somebody in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so um, if what is that pitch process like? If people have a story, how can they how can they pitch that? Um, do you have that number or the website? You can go right on our website and do it. You can call the Moth eight at eight seven 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 nine nine Moth, which is eight seven 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 nine nine six six eight four. Or you can go right on the Moth website, themoth.org, and there's a whole way to record it right on your uh, laptop or your computer, assuming you have a microphone in there. And what you should do for your pitch is, yeah, you only have two minutes, so you kind of gotta. Think about it before you call um, and try and time it. But you want a, a time that you um, something unexpected happened that changed you. Um, you want it should be kind of something surprising or um, charming. Um, funny things are welcome. Moving things, um, but yeah, it should be a little bit processed in your brain. There, like, what is this story actually about? One trick that I do with, we all at the moth do a lot, is like, what's the story about in one sentence? Because if you can distill 
what the story is about in that little in a sentence, then you can build it out in a way that's very satisfying. But it can be a real bear to write that one sentence. You know, it could be the hardest sentence in the world. Like, is it about me finding myself in the face of, you know, or is it about, yeah, because for many stories, there are about five different sentences that might work. But Mm -hmm. you have to think about which the ones that's real, which the one that's really true. Hmm. So um, that's a challenging thing. But if you write the sentence, you got that down, then you know, that's probably 30 seconds, and then you have a whole minute and a half to put in the fun details, um, <laughs> the characters. But you, at, at the moth, the one thing is you need to be a character in the story. I know there is a wonderful, huge tradition there of telling your um, rel- your ancestors' stories, and uh, and I have, wow, been at the, I heard a couple uh, ghost stories from people and was like, whoa, <laughs> I, don't, I had trouble sleeping. Um, really cool ghost stories um, or stories. Um, we would like your stories. To, you could tell a ghost story, but you have to be the one who was terrified. We want you to have seen the apparition yourself. That's it. So that's kind of the rule. Um, and I think, uh, I hope I get a lot. I hope a lot of people call in because we'd love to hear them. And we do listen to every single one. Great, great. Um, what can people expect at the show on Thursday here at the Apple Shop? Well, we've got five storytellers. We've got a fantastic host, um, Dame Wilburn, who is the only person who's not from the area, although she's, um, she, did, she did summer in Alabama most of her life, so she does have some, southern, uh, some southernness to her, um, uh, but she mostly lives in Detroit. Very different place than Alabama, but, and, oh, no, it's Georgia where she's from. I'm so sorry. It's mm-hmm. definitely Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see. Then we have um, other people. Everyone else is from Kentucky or West Virginia or, or Appalachia. And um, they are, huh, another thing I just didn't have open right in front of me. Last time I did have that right <laughs> open in front of me. So, yeah, I thought I would have remembered all this, but no, I don't have it there. Program. I wouldn't remember oh, either here's everybody's bios well i should be i've been talking to them all okay (laughs) we have um yeah let's see we have very varied stories we have um one we have uh rabia wazir who is a um a lawyer in the area she's telling um about a a job she got in dc she's a kentucky west virginia kentucky um woman um, we have Steve Shell, who grew up in the area and now is a teacher in Asheville, North Carolina, but he's coming to tell about some some of his boyhood in the area. Um, Kathy Hart is also a Kentucky native, and she's talking about um, an experience when she was in Bible College, somewhere in Kentucky. I forget what the name of the school is, but you can ask her. She'll be there on Thursday. And Jacob, who... Um, he works over at Firestone, and he's going to talk about growing up in the area and his um, and um, enjoying punk rock, which I know is something that happens. It, at, at Apple Shop has some punk rock shows sometimes, right? It's true. It's true. During our um, seed time on the Cumberland Festival, which is coming up in the first weekend in June, y'all have to yes. make a trip back down just for fun. Yes. Well, all of these people <laughs> who know of your are really sing the praises of Apple Shop and. It's great that it is. It feels like home to so many different people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know different sorts of people in different lines of work and everything that's what a testimony to the place so i think the show is going to be kind of have that have that that in common with apple shop because people are all very different finally there's a guy who um we found through the moth does work with the innocence project and um so we have michael von allman who's a uh was exonerated um in 2010 and he's going to be telling a little story involving his exoneration after spending quite a lot of time in prison for something he didn't do. Um, yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> Although that sounds like sad, but he, no. there, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's touching stories and funny stories and yeah, something for everybody. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT Mountain Community Radio. On today's show, we're learning about The Moth, a live storytelling series that comes to Apple Shop on May 10th. We just heard some behind-the-scenes details about how The Moth works and how it all started from director Jennifer Hickson. Next up, we'll hear two stories recorded at live moth shows, both about pigs. The first comes from Detroit's Dame Wilburn, and the second from Australian comedian John Bennett. I don't know if it's obvious to you, but I'm a strange child, okay? So I had like dual citizenship growing up. I was um, born in Macon, Georgia, and would spend my summers there, and then during the school year, I'd be in Detroit, uh, Michigan. Now, let's establish my life for a second, right? So I went to a private German school, um, the Detroit Waldorf School. So though everybody in my school spoke German, the Waldorf Rudolf Steiner method of teaching is from Germany. Um, I would come home speaking German, and my own father, who was paying the bill, would call me a communist. Now, <laughs> then I would go to Georgia and visit my grandma, who we all called Nee Nanny, and she had a cousin who owned a jackass that used to wear pants, and, and a, like a straw hat, and no one seemed to notice that that's what was happening. I'm sitting there, he's got on a, no one's saying anything, so I didn't say anything. And then when I'd leave school and come home, I was in Detroit. Like, I didn't live in the outskirts. Like, some people say they're from Detroit and they're like 70 miles out. No, I was in Detroit. So, there's, so I had this kind of weird multicultural upbringing. And so things never quite made sense to me. Case in point, I'm in Georgia and we lived in Macon. And Macon at the time had not zoned itself yet to exclude farm animals. Now we couldn't have large animals, we could have something small. So my grandfather was a hog farmer, but in the city. Now, I'm gonna paint a picture. So I-75 cuts through my granddaddy's backyard, I-75 South. Um, if you happen to drive through Macon and see Mercer University Drive, there's a storage facility there's this weird looking house that looks like somebody put it together from a kit. There's a barn that does not look like a barn, but is the color of a barn, and that is my grandfather's house. Now, when I 
was little, I'd go down and I'd stay for the summer, and my mother wanted me to have a traditional Southern upbringing. She wanted me to understand my family, my roots, and where I came from. So that meant a lot of sweet tea, a lot of yes ma'am, no ma'am. Pretty much being Southern is just eating a lot of food and thanking people for it. Like that's 90% of the job. That's all you do. You just go to somebody's house and they hand you a plate of something and you say, thank you ma'am, and you eat it. And you don't know what it is and it's best not to ask. And you, that's why that tea is so sweet. Like just eat it, slam the tea, and get out, you know? And that's, that's, that's the job. So um, my, my parents, we lived in a two-family flat, so I could never have a pet, and I always wanted a pet. And the lady across the street, from, she was, I'm not getting into that, that's another story. But she raised chickens and cats together. So she had, like, these gigantic chickens and these big sort of alley cats um, and then she had these little chicks and little kittens, and everybody got along. The cat never tried to kill a chicken. Chicken never tried to kill a cat. It was, you know, it was a pretty good life. And I called my mother and said that the lady across the street told me I could have a kitten. And my mother was like, no, you can't have a kitten. I said, well, this, but I want one. She's like, I understand that, but we don't live in the kind of place you can have a kitten. I said, okay. My grandfather is listening to this, and he says, well, your mama won't let you have a kitten, but you could have a hog. And I'm like, yeah, that, yeah, like a hog. So, but now, all the hogs had had babies, right? So we got the little piglets, right? And they're all, I mean, if you've ever seen a piglet piglet, not, not two weeks in, because two weeks in, they look like monsters. But like when they're little, 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 I, it seemed perfectly reasonable to me that I could move into a two-family flat with this little pig. I never thought it was going to grow up. I thought they just had sizes, like you get a little one, and then there's a bigger one, and then there's the one, the gigantic ones that are mean. I didn't understand anything. Now, these hogs were, we were already in trouble because they were smarter than us. Like every day of my grandfather's life was a battle to outwit the hog so they'd stay in the pen. And he'd win that battle about 80% of the time. But 20% of the time, usually around 3 in the morning, you'd be in bed and you'd hear, ah, and that lets you know the hogs were on the freeway. That's how you knew. That's how you knew. So we wouldn't even, like, we wouldn't, there wouldn't even be a startle. There was, the first time it happened, I, you know, I'm a little kid, I'm like, Oh my God, it's like, a, what's going on? You know, and after that, you just get used to it. You're like, oh, the hogs got out. So you get up and you put your clothes on that you had the day before because you, you keep them out because the hogs might get out. And my grandmother would go in the kitchen and start making coffee because it was going to take a minute to get them off the freeway. And the truck drivers would come off the freeway, walk down through the holler, come up through the backyard, come sit in the kitchen and drink coffee. And my grandfather, my grandfather would go out there and say, well, boss man, we got to get these hogs off this freeway. You might well go in the house and have some coffee with my wife because it's going to be a minute. So these guys, all the, all the northbound, southbound traffic, some of the northbound traffic would come over, get in the kitchen, drink coffee. My grandma would start making breakfast. She just, we always have eggs. We all, like it was just, that, that was normal. And then all of us who weren't making breakfast would go out with the buckets of slop, walk through the backyard, go down the holler, get up on the freeway, see, and start trying to get them to come off the freeway. Now, if I had, I know, that was good, wasn't it? Um, that's how you know this is not a lie. Um, but 
it was just normal. Like, that was a normal thing. And I would go to school and when I got back home, and I'd say, hey, you know, we had to get the hogs off the freeway. And my friends, you know, my Detroit city friends would say, your family is country as hell. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's, you don't have to tell me that. But anyhow, I, uh, I called my mother, and I said, well, granddaddy says I can have a piglet. And my mother said, your granddaddy's a liar. And I said, well, he said I could bring it home. She said, your granddaddy's a damn liar. Put him on the phone. So the two of them get into some sort of heated conversation. And I'm not even there because I'm in the backyard at the fence picking out my piglet. And granddaddy comes out of talking to my mother and says, uh, now your mama is right. You can't have no pig in the city. They won't let you have it. But if you leave him here with me, you can have him, but he'll still be yours, but he'll be with me. And I'm thinking, this feels like a divorced parent thing, but it's the best I'm gonna get, because this is the closest thing I'm gonna get to a pet. So he said, go ahead and pick him out. So I pick out this little piglet that's all black, and I name him Blackie, because that's what you do when you're a child. Simple things. What's the name of your black pig? Blackie. I get simple and easy to remember. <clears throat> and I stay for the rest of the summer, and Blackie's starting to get a little bigger, and I can't wait, because it's going to be about nine months, and then I'm going to come back and see Blackie. So I go to school, and I tell everybody about Blackie. I'm going on about Blackie. I'm telling my mother and father about Blackie. I saw Blackie. Blackie did this. Blackie did that. I called my granddad. How's Blackie? Blackie's doing real good. Okay, so tell me something else about Blackie. Blackie's good, and he's getting real big. Okay, so that's all he keeps saying. I'm like, yes, Blackie's getting good, getting big. I'm going to school every day. My, my pig is getting big. He's so, he's so smart. You know, the pigs get out and get on the freeway. Your family's country as hell. You know, it's just this cycle just keeps happening. So long before anybody really trusted the post office, because there was a minute when no one trusted the post office. This is like the late 70s. You didn't mail nothing. You put stuff on the, don't lie to me, y'all did it. You put it on the bus. If you were sending something serious, you put it on the bus, and you go down to the Greyhound station and pick it up. So my grandfather calls and tells my mother and my father that he's sending us a package. And I am, I know, I'm in the future with you. I know. And I am, you know, he, my grandmother had crowded peas and purple hulls, and she would shuck all these peas and send us peas and okra and anything out of her garden. They would freeze it and send it to us. So I hated peas, so I was already uninterested in what might be coming. And we get down to the bus station. We pick up this cooler, and it's like double wrap. There's all kinds of tape and stuff on it. So we bring the cooler home, and my dad pulls out his pocket knife, and he cuts open the cooler, and he starts taking out all this stuff wrapped in butcher paper. And it's you know, it's obviously meat, and I'm like, oh, granddaddy sent us meat. And then my dad gets through the first layer of papers, and then as he starts pulling stuff out, each package says, Blackie. <laughs> now, I'm too young to read, but the look of horror on my mother's face pretty much let me know what that said. And there's sausages and smoked pork chops and ham hocks and tons of bacon, like lots of bacon, because Blackie got real big. And um, I'm mortified. I'm, I'm at the kitchen table petting the paper. Like, really in my mind, I decided my grandfather was a cannibal. Like, there's nothing wrong with him. 
My grandfather's mentally ill. And I'm, pet, I'm just petting this paper. And my mother looks at me and she says, Damien, granddaddy doesn't really know what pet means. <laughs> like, if it's a dog, he thinks that's a pet. If it's a cat, he thinks that's a pet. Now, just about anything else that you can cook with a bucket of peas, he probably doesn't think is a pet. And I was done. I was a vegetarian. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done with you savages. I'm done. I'm not eating. I'm not eating no more pig. I'm done. And I want to tell you that I held that line. I want to tell you that. My dad, in the middle of March in Michigan, dusted off the grill on the back porch of that second story flat. And he put a couple of rounds of sausages and a couple of slabs of ribs on that grill. And by the time he brought it in the house and put some Mrs. Griffith barbecue sauce on it, which you could only get in Mega Georgia, my granddaddy sent along with the pig. <laughs> I pretty much just said, well, here's to you, Blackie, and I ate everything on that plate. When I asked our next storyteller, tell us about a time when you were in over your head. He said he was taking a scuba diving class and the instructor told him to take the respirator out of his mouth and sink to the bottom of the pool. He did so and just sort of sat there. Then it dawned on him that something was wrong. Then he realized that he was just sitting there drinking water. And that's when the instructor sort of looked down, realized something else was wrong and brought it back up. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next storyteller and scuba survivor, John Bennett. Hello. Uh, so I grew up on a tiny little farm in the middle of rural South Australia, this tiny little pig farm with my three older brothers and my mum and my dad. And it was, it was sort of one of those battery pig farms where a lot of the pigs are just locked away in tiny little, uh, tiny little pens and a lot of the pigs are only allowed to stand up and sit down. And when I was six years old, I uh, awoke in the middle of the night and I ran up to the pig shed and I set free all of the pigs. <laughs> And this was no sort of animal liberation thing or anything like that. I remember what I thought at that time. I, th I wanted to wake up in the morning and just see pigs everywhere. You know, pigs driving the tractor, a pig doing the dishes. I thought pigs would just be everywhere. And I awoke in the morning to my dad shaking me awake. And he took me up to the pig shed. And none of the pigs had moved. <laughs> and dad said, see, they want to be here. I hope you've learned something. My dad said those sort of things all the time. I hope you've, you've learned something. And my dad is this very serious, stern, and, and this impatient man. And uh, he was one of those men who had to ha have a hand in everything. He had to have a hand in everything. We'd be doing the dishes or something like that, and dad would push us out of the way because we weren't washing the forks properly. One of those men. He had to have a hand in everything. He was everything in my life. He dominated my life growing up. And so I had to work with him on the pig farm every single day, me and my brothers working on the pig farm. And, and, uh, but he wasn't just uh, a pig farmer. He was also my school teacher. And I don't mean a teacher at my school, I mean my teacher, teaching me every single day at school in this tiny little farming community. 
That's why I had to see him every day at school as well and every night working on the pig farm. But he wasn't just my school teacher either. He was also the bus driver, so he'd pick us up from our house, drive us to school, teach us every day at school, drive us home, and then we'd, uh, we'd have to work on the pig farm after that as well. So all, all me and my brothers had were weekends. Weekends were our times off from Dad. And on Sundays, me and my family would go to church. Dad was the minister at the local church. <laughs> so all I had was Saturdays. Saturdays were my respite from Dad. And all you do when you grow up on the farm in rural South Australia, all you do on Saturdays is play sports. Dad was my football coach, my basketball coach, and my tennis coach. He was everything in my life. This very stern, serious, and impatient man. And, he, and I remember as a kid, one of the things he, he, he said, he never said a swear word in his entire life. And we would say, how is this possible, Dad? How is this possible that you've never said a swear word? And he had the same answer every time. He said, there are other words you can use, and there's no need for that language. And I'm not kidding, I've seen him walk around the back of the car at nighttime in the darkness and hit his shin so hard on the tow bar of the car that he's just dropped to his knees, looked up at the moon, raised his fists and just yelled, curses! He yells, curses. <laughs> like a Scooby-Doo villain, he yells, curses. <laughs> These are the other words that my dad uses instead of swearing. And the other words he uses instead of swearing is he just yells his feelings. So we'd be out working on the farm and we'd just hear this scream of just, I'm angry! I'm annoyed, I'm upset! He just yells his feelings, that's what he does, instead of swearing. And when I turn 18 years old, I decide that farm life isn't for me. I move to the city, I start going to university, I, I, I study arts at university, and I become a vegetarian. Around this time, my second oldest brother, Alf, moves to a, a, a place called Kangaroo Island off the coast of South Australia, this tiny little, little island. And uh, he moves there. Kangaroo Island is this beautiful, natural wonderland in Australia. It's got all those animals that you guys want to see because there's hardly any introduced species on Kangaroo Island, so the local flora and fauna is allowed to, uh, allowed to thri uh, thrive. And uh, around this time, uh, my dad loves Kangaroo Island. He goes and visits my brother every single weekend, and he visits my brother so much that he manages to get a job on Kangaroo Island as a, as a minister at the local church. And he gets his other job after church every Sunday going hunting with these local farmers and these hunters, hunting these wild pigs, which are the only introduced species on Kangaroo Island. And around this time, I'm going to university, I decide to visit my brother. And I, I go to the island, my dad is there on the Sunday, and we go to church, and then after church, dad says to me, 18-year-old me, he says, uh, do you want to come hunting with me? And I say, no, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> and he says, I just want to come and check it out. It's in this beautiful national park. It's really beautiful. It's the best part of Kangaroo Island. Uh, you should come and check out this national park. And dad has never, never been anywhere else in the world. He hasn't been anywhere else in the world because he's got the same excuse, why do I need to go anywhere? Kangaroo Island is right there. And I would say to him things like, you know, Dad, I've been to Japan and places like that. And he'd say, I I've seen Japanese people on Kangaroo Island. Why do I need to go anywhere? <laughs> we also go to hunting, and I, and I say, no. And he goes, come check out this national park. So, so I say, OK, I'll go to this national park. And Dad and I, we drive to this park. And uh, there's a big shed out the front of the park. I walk into the shed, and there's all these hunters and these farmers just loading up with these trucks with guns and then driving off through this national park hunting these wild pigs. And Dad says again, are you sure you don't want to come hunting? It's really fun. And I say, oh, no, I don't want to. And Dad says, okay, just help me load up this truck with guns and then I'll organize for a ride back to your brother's house for you. And Dad hands me a gun. And I don't know if you've ever held a gun before. I'm in Alabama, you're all probably holding right now. I don't know, but... <laughs> I feel the weight of this gun. I feel the weight tonight. And I think, oh, I get this weird sense of power. This weird feeling comes over and I go, oh, yeah. Let's hunt something. I want to shoot something. Let's shoot something. 
And Dad says, great, we load up this truck with guns, and then Dad and I, we drive this truck through in this national park. We park the truck, and then for the next three hours, Dad and I just walk through this national park hunting these wild pigs. And after these three hours, Dad shoots six wild pigs. I shoot none. I enjoy looking through the scope at things far away, I like looking at birds and stuff like that. I'm having a really good time. I like jumping out from bushes and going, pow, pow, pow. I'm having a really good time. And Dad keeps saying I'm going to shoot something when I'm not because I'm just sort of messing around and everything like that. And he's getting very annoyed with me because he's screaming, I'm annoyed. And, to <laughs> and he says, look, I keep thinking you're going to shoot something and you're not. Do you, do you want to shoot something? And I say, no, Dad, I'm having a really good time. I feel like I'm in Predator or something like that. By this time, I put mud under my eyes. And, and, to, and he says, no, no, I'm going to find you something to shoot. And he disappears off through these trees. And he comes back about 10 minutes later. And he whispers, I found you something. And I follow him through these trees. He tells me to look through my scope, through the bushes. And I look through my scope. And I see a pig. And it is a big pig. And it is just laying in some mud. And it has a bunch of little babies just running around and suckling to its teats. I'm looking at this sleeping mother pig and dad just whispers in my ear, it's easy. <laughs> and I say, I know it's easy, dad, but this is a little bit f***ed, don't you think? And he says, there's no need for that language. <laughs> and I sit there looking at this pig and I say to dad, do I have to shoot the babies as well? And he goes, no, just shoot the mum, they'll die by themselves. And I look at this pig forever and, 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 I, and I think, no, I can do this. And dad whispers again, he goes, you can do this, you're helping, you're helping. They're an introduced species, they, they ruin the environment for the local flora and fauna, you're helping, you can do this. And I think, okay, I can do this. And I get the pig's head in my sights, I close my eyes, and I pull the trigger. When I open my eyes, I see dad's back in front of me, and I see him just drop to the right, and I have just shot Dad in the back. He's lost patience and jumped in front of me as I'm just about to, to shoot it, and I, and I drop the gun, and Dad swings around. He grabs himself by the shoulder. Blood comes out from between his fingers. He looks at me. His eyes are wide, and he just says, you shot me. <laughs> It's the first who ever heard him swear he just unleashes this tirade of abuse. Just you effing shot me. I am effing dead. You have effing killed me. Do you know where we are? We're in the middle of nowhere. I am effing dead. You have effing killed me. <laughs> and I'm in shock and I've dropped, dropped the gun, but secretly in the back of my brain, I kind of want to go, there's no need for that language, but I don't say <laughs> anything. And Dad continues this tirade of abuse. He's just like, I can't believe it's you. <laughs> Out of all of my sons, you're the one who kills me. The vegetarian. <laughs> the city boy. And he pulls his phone out, he throws his phone at me and says, call mum, call mum, tell, tell her you've killed me and I'm dead. <laughs> and I get his phone and I, I dial emergency. I'm not, a, I'm not an idiot. I, I, I dial emergency and I say, I've just, I've just shot my dad. And they say, where are you? And I say, Kangaroo Island. And they say, we need you to be a bit more specific than that. And I say, I don't know, we're in a national park. There are, there are trees that people go hunting here. And they say, we think we know where you are. There's a property about a kilometer away. Do you think you can get him to that property so we can bring the helicopter in to get him? And I say, yeah, he seems OK. And I hang up from them. I tell Dad, we've got to get to, the, to this property. And he says, give me your jumper, your, your sweater. 
and I take off my sweater and he uses the sleeve of my sweater to stuff into a hole in his chest. I have to hold the sweater into his chest as I carry him back to where we've parked the truck. I put him in the passenger side of the truck. I run around to the driver's side. I start the truck up and I can't drive a stick shift. <laughs> and this is one of those big old trucks with one of these things on the steering wheel and all I do is I grind it into a gear and bounce forwards and stop and dad screams in pain i started up i grind it into a different gear and we bounce forwards and stop and dad screams again and then says get out <laughs> i get out of the truck as dad slides along the seat into the driver's side leaving this trail of blood along the back of the seat and drives himself to this property now all they've told me to do on the emergency line is just to make sure that dad stays awake which is good now that he's driving and we get to this property and by the time we get there, the helicopter is there, they load dad out of the truck, and they load him onto the helicopter, I get on the helicopter and we get taken to hospital. The next thing I remember is my mum just walking out of the surgery, looking at me and saying, he's gonna be okay. He's lost his collarbone, he had very little blood left in his body when he got here, but he's going to be okay. She says, do you wanna go and see him? And I say, My mum forces into my dad's surgery room, he's just sitting in the bed, he looks at me and he says that thing again. I hope you've learned something. <laughs> but you know what, I think uh, my dad learned something on that day. That's that sometimes there is a need for that kind of language. <laughs> I will also learn something about nine years later. And that is that dad has almost been shot about 12 times because he jumps in front of people as they're about to shoot something. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, John Bennett. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring The Moth, a live storytelling series that will be here at Apple Shop on Thursday, May 10th. Music on this episode comes from the June Apple recording of the White Top Mountain Band with a tune called Pig in a Pin. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, please visit our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.
I'm gone. 